The Square Peg Podcast. Commencing Season 2. Mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. And we're here to tell their stories. The Square Peg Podcast. Here's your host, Andrew Lawrence. Not all of us look the way the world expects us to look, think as the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destination the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and thank you to the Searchlight Needles for getting us started as always. The hashtag needles aren't just a quartet of middle-aged, overweight, and balding El Paso. Robert Martinez, Josh Smith, Adrian Ortiz, and David Sions are four really fantastic guys who hold down jobs and take care of families on, during the week and they rock out on the weekend. You can find them on the web at www.searchlightneedles.com. You can find them on Facebook, and you can download their album on all streaming services. Our guest today is history professor Dr. Timothy Nelson. Dr. Nelson's multifaceted work concerns racism, ambition, and the search for opportunity. These themes were revealed in his 2015 Ph.D. dissertation, The Significance of the Afro-Frontier. Dr. Nelson was born in south-central Los Angeles and raised in Compton, during the 1990s in the wake of the race and class-based conflict with the Los Angeles Police Department. He earned his Ph.D. from the University of Texas, El Paso. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Nelson. Hello. Thank you for having me. We are so glad to uh, have you here finally. Uh, I've been looking forward to this the whole off-season. <laughs> it's been a busy off-season. <laughs> there is an off-season. We are in the midst of season two here on the South, uh, the, the Square Peg podcast. Um I'm, uh, I'm I'm glad to have you here. I'm glad we're able to do this. Uh, distance is not an issue, obviously. Uh, things are real challenging now with COVID and not being able to get together in person with people. Right. And, and I imagine that's been there've been a, maybe some challenges for you uh, with the work that you're doing. Um, but hopefully, it hasn't been too bad. You've been able to continue up with the research you've been doing. How's that been going? Oh, it's actually uh, exponentially grown because I've always operated in the virtual world. So now, ever, since everyone else is in the virtual world with me, uh, it's 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 been exponential growth since more, the, more the ban- pandemic started. So do you, you feel like people are a little bit more accessible to you? Yeah. Well, that's good to hear. You know, few people think of the U.S. Southwest when the subject of black history comes up. And uh, conversely, few people think of black history when discussing the history of the United States Southwest. How did you first hear about blackdom and uh, what or how long was the process of you deciding that this was going to be the focus of your research? Uh, I I came in in, in a few different directions. Um, and, And, you know, with U.S. history, we all get this false sense of direction. Uh, like, like, for example, the U.S. Southwest was also Mexico's northern frontier. So when I first heard about blackdom and I listened to the stories of blackdom, um, I wasn't all that impressed. But I also came at it from another direction, which was uh, as a poor college student. And uh, my uh, dissertation chair said, hey, you got to do something local if you're going to finish it. So blackdom became my project. And so uh, as I started looking at it, I realized that the stories told about it wasn't the full narrative. And that's when I really uh, came to want to be a part of uh, uh, discovering Blackton. I, well, I was, I was thinking, uh, you know, I think you and I have discussed before, and we'll talk about it a little bit later, how I first heard the word Blackton. But, I mean, where did, that, where did the, the first time, do you remember the first time you actually heard the word Blackton 
or read it somewhere or had it introduced to you? That's what it, it was introduced to me by uh, someone who became my dissertation uh, chair, uh, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Shepard. He's at uh, UTEP now, and he, I think he lives in Las Cruces. I'm sure he lives in Las Cruces. Uh, I, I heard about it when I was getting my Ph.D. I, had, I heard nothing about it the whole, what, uh, decade I was in Las Cruces. I just, I'd never come across it. And I studied black history at New Mexico State. So uh, that ought to show you, you know, there was there was something else going on. So you actually got into your Ph.D. program not knowing exactly what you were going to write the, the dissertation on. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Usually, uh, well, let's just put it like this way. Um, a few people go in knowing what they're going to do, and the people who know what they're going to do usually change. And if you don't, you'll get through pretty quickly. Uh, but uh, nine out of ten people are going to have to uh, revamp what they thought they were going to do. So, yeah, it's always a, a nebulous space when you when you join a Ph.D. program. That's very interesting because I had never really given that any thought. And, you know, uh, my, my education formally, you know, my formal education finished at the bachelor's degree level. But I was always under the impression that at least the, the leap from the master's to the Ph.D., uh, there was some sort of continuity uh, in that you you would uh, write your 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 master's thesis on something and then expand upon it uh, with your PhD. But that's I'm I'm learning today that's not actually how it goes. Well, you can, and and there is a program where if you have a bachelor's degree, I think at UTEP you can, with some uh, really good uh, references, get into the PhD program and get your master's degree on your way to getting your PhD. And yes, then what you're talking about is implicit in the process. So that's why you it kind of speeds you through. However, I didn't join that way. I joined the PhD program with already a master's degree, which means, uh, you know, when, when you transfer, technically that's what it is. I was transferring in graduate school. Uh, everything didn't apply. I had to do what the PhD program wanted me to do instead of the master's program at University of Northern Iowa wanted me to do. So that's how, that's what I mean by if you're able to get into a program that has both master's and PhD, you can get through pretty quickly. Well, as as long or as 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 there as much as there have, may have been a process to you finding Blackdom and deciding that that was going to be the focus of your PhD uh, dissertation, uh, the Exoduster lens versus the Afrofrontierist lens uh, is something that's very central to your analysis of Blackdom in particular, uh, to the history of how blacks in the West in general. Uh, you get right into that, and that becomes very apparent very early on in your dissertation. Take, take us take us through the yeah, process. Yeah. Take us through the process of how you came up with the term and how you came, came to see this history through that particular lens. Um, okay, so uh, I was a little uh, ambitious uh, during my uh, PhD program and, and my dissertation. So now the way that I kind of put it is not exoduster versus Afro-Frontiers. I used to kind of have that because it was a thought process, but then as I've refined it, I've realized that Afro-Frontierism is a postscript to uh, exodusterism. And, and, and for the audience, exodusterism, uh, think of it as people inspired by uh, the biblical narrative of Exodus and Moses uh, children of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. And if you notice, uh, um, uh, 
the, the black president, 44, uh, Obama, his, his book is called Promised Land. It comes from uh, this identity that uh, most um, uh, African-Americans have. So Afro-frontierism more so is a postscript to exodusterism. And the short version is uh, of why I had to do that is because when I found Black Demoyle, uh, I had a hard time understanding what it was, what its importance was, and so I had to come up with a whole new historical framework for all of us to understand, because that's the nature of uh, dissertation work. You kind of have to have an original idea, and so that's how it came. That's how it came about. Wow. Um, so, so the Afro, you, you've given us uh, an idea, an example of of the exoduster. Uh, with the biblical reference, um, could you be a little bit um, take us a little bit more specifically into what you mean by an Afro frontierist? Oh, okay. Um, now I'm going to do something that most historians don't do. I'm going to give you a, a very uh, elementary uh, analogy here. Well, that's why so, we're having you, you on the show because you do things <laughs> that most historians don't do. All right. So um, I was listening to students of mine, and they started talking about the Illuminati. And so as I investigated further, I found that to be uh, analogous of uh, what black demites did. They formulated an Illuminati. And for me to translate that to academia, I, I, that's where I begin to talk about Afrofrontierism. It is a unique set of ideas because of the circumstances that, uh, 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 you know, transform a, an individual into something different. So they went from being black people to being Afro-frontiers. They were something different when they decided to become Blacktonites and create the Blackton Townsite Company. Well, the duality of owning land in Blackton but living in Roswell. You've explained it as somewhat of a necessity uh, in making a living uh, was done at jobs outside of the town and the investment in Blackton was done sort of uh, on prospect, if you will. Uh, was this the plan all along or was it kind of figure out as people went along? How did the Homestead Act of uh, 1912 change this, if at all? Oh, wow. OK, that, that's a lot. <laughs> let, let me let, let me try to shrink it down for a minute. OK, so imagine. um a wall or veil. So, so behind the corporate veil of the townsite company I was just talking about, uh, black people had more power. They were they were able to live out their own version of utopia. So when new laws came in, because they were in their own municipality and sovereign beings, they were able to take advantage of, you know, when the, uh, I'll give you an example. The, the, the um, Homestead Act of 1909 is what started Blackton's revival because it took uh, the original allotments, which were like 160 acres, uh, and doubled it to 320. So if you had two homesteads now, you had a whole square mile. So that create that that new law created new possibilities that black people could take advantage of because they were behind the corporate veil of their municipality. If they were just Roswellians, they wouldn't be able to. They would just be black people who were 
uh, chained to the uh, underclass of Roswell. And so they, you know, the the fact is, money. Did, it's not like money started rolling in, and, and we'll get to that a little bit no. later with with the oil and the oil prospecting and and oil contracts. Uh, you know, there are some people you've talked about uh, specifically who who had to run businesses. I guess the you know the the bills won't pay themselves, and when the <laughs> land the land isn't producing harvests yet, and oil hasn't been found yet, I guess you kind of have to have a job. But it seems to me like, uh, if I read correctly, the Homestead Act of 1912 kind of changed this because it shortened the amount of time a person had to be on a certain specific uh, plot of land before they could file for a homestead patent. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah you're, you're getting into uh, the details of the laws. And what I'm saying is the very fact that black folks were able to take advantage of the law is the point. Okay. Do you see how that that's, that's, that's significant, right? Because... Uh, Roswell was a was a Confederate stronghold. Most of the black people were cooks and porters. Now you had cooks and porters becoming co-founders of their own municipality, of their own businesses, and and being sovereign beings. You see, you see how that's like that, that's a it's a it's a nuance, but it's a very important one. Right, and I think I maybe even got ahead of myself here. Just uh, for 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 my ears, and of course for our listeners, let's go back real quick and just tell me. To, let's talk about real quick about what the Blackdom Thirteen are and the Blackdom Townsite Company. Oh, how much time do we have? <laughs> real basic, um, real basic. Let's just the the Blackdom Thirteen. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, the kids used to talk about uh, Illuminati. So in this scenario, they would be the Illuminati. They were uh, ministers, military men, and Freemasons. Now, they were all that, and they were stuck in Roswell as cooks, maids, and porters. Well, because they had the ambition and fortitude, and they communed in churches and uh, Masonic lodges, they said, how can we get more, how can we realize more of our ambition? Boom, let's create a town. How do you create a town? Well, they know that because a lot of these people were educated. They were ministers, military men, and Freemasons. So the Black of 13 were the ones who um, collectively created uh, the image of what a Black Demite was and, and, and prioritized what a, a, a Black Demite uh, wanted uh, in, the, in the town site. And now, here's a message from one of the sponsors who make this program possible. Lorenzo's Italian Restaurant has been a part of the Las Cruces community for over 25 years, supporting schools, shelters, and veterans. Even during COVID times, Lorenzo's is offering patio tent dining, delivery, curbside pickup, chow now online, and mobile app ordering. Now offering customers any signature or two-topping pizza for only $15. There's only one Lorenzo's in town. And it's at 1753 East University in Pan Am Plaza. You can call 575-521-3505. And ladies and gentlemen, just a little bit of ad lib here. If you've never had a Lorenzo's meatball, you've never had a Lorenzo's meatball. By the way, I know. dip their bread in some of the oil with a little bit of salt, a little bit of Parmesan. You will not be disappointed, I guarantee you. Now, back, uh, back to the discussion uh, quite often you've mentioned in your dissertation the lack of uh, what you call formal or what I would call formal Jim Crow laws in the New Mexico Territory. Uh, while still racism still obviously existed as it did in much of the rest of the U.S. Um, 
it wasn't until the third decade of the 20th century when Blackdom land was consolidated and, of course, the prospect of serious oil profits loomed, um, the things started to get really bad. Um, we saw the formation of a local KKK charter. Um, what other examples of ramped-up racism are you aware of that stemmed from the same type of uh, uh, prospect of, of black economic opportunity and prosperity? Okay. This is uh, one of those uh complex stories uh, that you're going to have to hold two ideas at once. Okay, so as the racial tension um, increased around the, the country and in Chavez County, understand that early black demites, um, uh, they were playing chess, right? And, and what I mean by that is they knew how to make the institutions work for them. I'll give you an example. Instead of saying, uh, you know, in the Plessy decision, uh, separate but equal, they would see it as separate and equal. In other words, there, there was a way to turn around whatever uh, uh, the worst that laws had to throw, because in the territory, there was no actual Jim Crow laws or enforcement. So they were able to use that to their advantage. Basically, they, 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 yeah, go ahead. Well, no, it just it seems to me that it's pretty clear that, uh, you know, saying people are equal is one thing or, or having a lack of a formal uh, system of, of tiered uh, classes in society uh, is is one thing. But it's not until the prospect of people actually having what really gives people power in this country, money, uh, seems to be the impetus for, wait a second, now we got to do something about it. I mean, we, we, right. say, we say it's equal, but... You know, now that there's green involved, uh, and that's the idea I'm kind of getting. It, it seems pretty obvious. Okay. So, so what, what black demites, so let me show you the chess that they played as they knew this was happening. Blackdom Oil was announced in the Roswell Daily Record December 31st, 1919. By the summer of 1922, Blackdom sold its church and half of its residents uh, moved completely out of the county, and the rest of them basically blended into Roswell. Nevertheless, they still remained uh, uh, to get their royalties. So the town existed virtually, and they were still getting money in Roswell and in Doniana County. Who was working the oil, though? Uh, so what would happen is there would be an exploration company that would come from New York, Los Angeles, Oklahoma, or even uh, local exploration companies like the Mescalero Oil Company, yada, yada, yada. They would come and lease the land. So basically the land that black termites had uh, was, was, was collected in paperwork and put into a bank in Roswell. And then in Roswell, uh, someone would come and pick up that paperwork and say, oh, okay, I will lease this pay the bank the money, and then the royalties would be distributed based on the leases of the land that was collected at the bank in Roswell. So it was the out-of-town exploration companies who actually did the drilling and the, the, the welding yeah. and all that stuff. Well, you know, right around the same time, and I don't recall the exact same year, you do make mention of the, the Tulsa massacre, massacre uh, that happened in Oklahoma and that how black money in many instances had been reinvested in the black economy. And this reminds me a lot of, uh, you know, my studies in history. Uh, Booker T. Washington uh, seemed, to have, seemed to have a particular 
uh, and probably competing idea uh, with W.B. Dubois at the same time um, about how how the black community in the United States was going to advance uh, as a, with uh, the the reinvesting in, in black institutions seemed to be more along the lines of what Booker T was, was all about. Am I am I tracking correctly? You 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 tracking you tracking what I what I, you see this is the postscript part. Uh, instead of choosing a horse, you know, to run in a particular direction, what I try to do with Afrofrontierism is show that all of Booker T. Washington, uh, Du Bois, uh, uh, I could go down, there's a whole list of them, Marcus Garvey, so on and so on, they were all a part of one intersectional blackness that influenced black people. There was, like I said, there's a Blackdom 13, not just one leader of Blackdom. All of these ideas from different states, different institutions came together, and the ones that uh, uh, worked uh, well together is, is what you saw in Blackdom. So yes, Boogie T. Washington was there, but he was there with his whole cohort, even the ones that disagreed with him. Well, I mean, you, you we talk about uh, the, the the name that comes up, it seems to me, most often as far as uh, if we're going to talk about our, our leading men, uh, it's Frank Boyer. And, mm-hmm. and Frank Boyer left for what we call either better or more consistent farming opportunities uh, in Doniana County right around the time that it appeared that the oil boom uh, was about to reap uh, some really good financial benefits uh, on the land in Blackdom. Uh, why not settle in Doniana County to begin with? Was uh, You would think that that time that farming might be a, a more uh, consistent or predictable, uh, for lack of a better term, a route to put down or, or, or a place to invest one's money. Uh, okay, yes, individually, maybe, maybe, but... Remember, they were also focused on Afrotopia, right? They didn't just want one person with a land or a piece of land or a lot of land. What they also wanted was a collective land that they can control from top to bottom, as, as high up as county-level municipality. So, yeah, sure, maybe he could have gone to Las Cruces early. or, or Well, actually, he couldn't because they had... Uh, um, uh, uh, Jim Crow laws that were informal that would have kept him from it. In other words, he couldn't engage Las Cruces or Doniana County in the same way he could Chavez County, in part because there was no uh, veil. He was just a black person in Las Cruces, but in Chavez County, he was a black domite. Okay, and maybe that leads me leads me back to why why blacked him in Chavez County and not Doniana County? You you just mentioned. Something about there being uh, probably more more formal or closer to formal Jim Crow laws. Was that the driving force uh, to go to Chavez rather than Doniana County? Oh, no. Uh, to, to go to Chavez County is because uh, Chavez County was the, uh, the economic engine of New Mexico at the turn of the 20th century. I mean, uh, the first car was in Roswell in 1901. Uh, they had electricity and gas and all this other stuff that was working well. They, they had the latest. They had also some of the wealthiest uh, cattle barons of the era, wealthy uh, railroad uh, executives in Roswell. So black people also followed where uh, economic opportunity was at the time. And so Roswell's uh, southeastern New Mexico, the Pecos Valley region, that became the 
uh, uh, the place to go, <laughs> you know, if, if, if you're following opportunities. So. And Boyer wasn't necessarily tied to Blackton uh, in the early goings to begin with. If I, if I remember correctly, sometime between uh, 1903, 1909-ish, he spent quite a bit of time as, as, a, as a carriage driver, some sort of chauffeur uh, for a yeah. colonel, a famous colonel, right, correct? Uh, uh, for, for Judge Freeman, for okay. District Judge Freeman. Okay. And and how long would how long did he do that? What was the benefit to that? Was it basically uh, that, or have a job in Roswell while we were waiting for Blackton to kind of to to come to fruition? So so the idea of Blackton was definitely established uh, September fifth, uh, nineteen oh three, with the Articles of Incorporation. At the same time, you needed money if you were going to prove up land in order to have a homestead, and so all of the people, every single one of them, who signed the Articles of Incorporation. Uh, kept their job. So if they were a cook, they were a cook in Roswell and also a co-founder and homesteader in Blackton at the same time, simultaneously. So, okay, so yeah, and Boyer was one of the, the models for that. And I don't want to, I don't want to beat this to death, but I, I, uh, when it comes to forming uh, the Blackton 13 or uh, forming a town site, it, was there were there possibilities in Doniana County to do something similar? Maybe not for oil because we don't have uh, in Doniana County the oil uh, resources that, of course, Eastern New Mexico does. But uh, would it have been possible to do some sort of collective with uh, regard to farming or anything else? They did. They did in Vado. They did in Vado. Um, but it was just a different. It, it was just a different. Um, how, how do you how do you put it? Uh, in Vado, their presence didn't necessitate them to create some blackdom type veil. Okay, they, they were able to engage as human beings as fully as they wanted to at, in the outskirts of Doniana County, uh, and, and and so they just did what they did, and it was cool, and they had their own utopia, but. You know, to go into a Confederate stronghold like Chavez County, they needed that veil in order to deal with white people. So it was more of a necessity. Yes, it's a necessity if if you want to. Like uh, behind that necessity is also a desire and ambition. So I just didn't want to leave that part out. Like, okay, you know, it's not like the necessity because we're oppressed. It's necessity if I want to uh, build, you know, build wealth. Well, it you know, Doctor Nelson, it doesn't seem. Like it, it was, uh, it, it took almost towards the very, very end uh, of your dissertation for the words or the term "black nationalism" uh, to even appear. Um, but you're seeing this westward move through the lens of Afro frontierism. Seems to me to be a really similar concept. Is is this? Uh, you know, am I am I right? Am I wrong? <laughs> uh, you're right on the money. Uh, what I, what I want you to see. Uh, in the dissertation is that it was implicit. Um, if you go back to the works of uh, Wilson Moses, for example, in Afrotopia, he talks about black nationalism being a product of slavery. Well, I'm not talking about slavery. I'm technically talking about the postscript of slavery, right? So implicit in what they were doing after slavery was uh, a, a form of black nationalism. So yeah, it was implicit. Well, I'm I'm actually really looking forward to to this next kind of topic. Um, you've obviously produced scholarship that's been published uh, and shared in professional journals by means traditionally 
uh, associated with you know with people who have PhDs. Um, but how have you been able to share the story of Blackdom? I was going to say your story, but your story, the story of Blackdom beyond the traditional kind of uh, stuffy uh, scholarly audience. <laughs> oh, um, movies, TVs, plays, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, Tumblr, YouTube, Santa Fe, New Mexican, WHA, public and private events. I have tried to... Uh, put it where the people are, and all you have to do on social media is follow one of my major hashtags. I mean, uh, I, 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 the, the, the complex things that you and I may be discussing right now, uh, it's just going to appear differently when you see it on social media. You'll just see it as either funny or not, or is that a cool shirt or not, right? You make those simple decisions, but behind it, it's a consciousness on display, a black consciousness on display, a black nationalist consciousness, no, a black demite consciousness on display. And is there any kind of uh, measurable way other than uh, likes or comments for you to, to get an idea of how many people you're reaching uh, through those means? Uh, through, uh, well, I mean, I guess if I was, uh, you know, uh, uh, rich, I could probably, <laughs> that, that could be a measurement, I guess, if I guess if I can get a whole lot of money. No, um, not really. Um, I, it's kind of like uh, the dissertation that I that few people uh, read fully. I'm 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 I'm, I'm glad you did. Uh, it, it still exists. <laughs> you know what I mean. That's kind of how I approach it. Uh, but I really would like if anyone wants to to share, like, comment, do uh, uh, any part of it. I would really appreciate it. It would well, be helpful. Well, and before we let you go, I'm going to give you an opportunity to kind of let everybody know how they can learn more about Blackdom and. Uh, believe me, I, I've I've been following this for quite a while, and there are quite a few different avenues. <laughs> right. <laughs> One of the things that uh, I, I try to do when I introduce people to Blackdom and me is I have them Google hashtag giggle my ass off. Completely spelled out, no spaces, and just the hashtag in front or the pound sign, depending on if you're digital or not. Right? I think I've seen that and hashtag. When you do that, it begins the rabbit hole. It, you begin to understand that, oh, all of these things are deliberate. And then if you were to compile enough of them, you would see the Afro-Frontier thesis in, in, in motion. So, so giggle, hashtag giggle my ass off is a bit of a gateway, you're saying? Yes. Okay. I use that when I talk to middle schoolers. They usually like it. If you just said ass, I'm sure middle schoolers would get a, a, kick, a kick out of that. And now a word from our sponsor. That's right. We have sponsors now. Have you experienced pain in your lower extremities, even your hips or lower back after standing or walking? Your feet may not fit into your shoes or on the ground properly. Soul Man Foot Insoles, with 30 years' experience making people's feet feel more comfortable, can help. Henry Soulman Veloz is the official insole provider for UTEP Athletics and has made custom insoles for my athletic, casual, dress shoes, and work boots for 15 years now. You can find them on Facebook at Soulman Custom Foot Insoles or you can call them at 915-241-2153 and that is Henry S-O-L-E-M-A-N Veloz at Soulman Custom Foot Insoles. Now, Dr. Nelson, um, I'm going to read a little bit of a quote here. Uh, it says, although black migration included diverse communities of color, 
who were spread across great distances. They were able to develop various ways to collaborate, plan, and execute complementary migration schemes designed to deliberately colonize frontier spaces on four continents. End quote. That's a bit of a sentence there. Uh, can you give yeah. some? Can you give some examples of maybe some other other places throughout the world, not even on, on North America, where this has kind of been the case? Oh yeah. Um, so if you look at the growth of Black Freemasonry uh, in the state of New Mexico or globally, you, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Black Freemason Prince Hall Freemasonry started in the uh, late 1790s in the in the post Revolutionary War era. Uh, you'll see wherever black colonization like Blackton was, you'll see black Freemasonry, but you'll also see black Freemasonry in other, uh, 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 places. It's, 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 um, it usually blends in and you kind of have to know what you're looking for sometimes, but, uh, that's one way to see, uh, their collaboration and, 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 uh, planning and execution. So could, do we see this maybe in, in, uh, West Africa where, uh, with Liberia, yeah. um, and any anything on the South American continent? Yeah, all over <laughs> the South American. In, in fact, that was a part of. Okay, so um, in the uh, in 1901, uh, some things happened beforehand too. But basically, in 1901, you had the establishment of uh, the 33 degree Masonry, uh, which is the uh, Shriners. I can give you the whole name, but. Shriners is fine. And part of their charter was both North and South America. Where in South America? Um, I'm thinking Brazil. Um, I know that there's a... Brazil, Peru. Just go through every... Okay, so every incorporated country has a black Freemasonry. And, and, and what you will find in New Mexico is that generally every major uh, county or municipality has a black Freemason lodge. But, you know, if you flip it to the other side and look at uh, white Freemasons, for lack of a better term, uh, you would see that in every county there's a uh, black Freemason or a white Freemason lodge. So, so Freemasonry is a part of the institutional colonization of territory and spaces. Sometimes. Again, I'm trying not to get into it looking like a conspiracy theory. I'm just saying that that's the fact. I get it. That's how it happened. Well, no, you, you talk a lot about Freemasonry and black Freemasonry, and it would seem to me uh, it would make sense, at least uh, you know, at the time of blackdom, they, we would have these separate lodges. Am, am, I, am I on the right track? Oh, yeah, they, they had separate lodges as, as early as uh, not, uh, 1780. I don't want to get the date wrong. 1780s, 1790s with Prince Hall Freemasonry. Well, of, of course, in 2020, you know, we're, you know, we're not perfect. We're certainly not in a post-racial world or post-racial America, but I would, I would imagine that uh, one of the, one of the the terms that I, that's stuck with me from uh, a social class I took in college was parallel institutions. I would imagine mm. that uh, I would imagine probably in the American South, in the Deep South, uh, we probably more likely to see a black Freemason lodges even to this day. Yes, and and you you see how Georgia changed over. You, you see you see that in the last election, that was a product not only of black Freemasonry, mostly intersectional blackness, but. Black Freemasonry was a key part of it, not not as a uh, hands behind like some magical curtain, but their association. They may not, they you know, 
just their associations in general. They they work together. They have trust in each other, and it helps to build community. Uh, you know, and we can go on and on about right. the kind of uh, community it builds, the society based on trust and rules and uh, a, a singular understanding of the universe. You know what I mean? Like these things were really important. And so, what you see in politics is uh, the 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 workings of Black Freemasonry a lot of times. Or at least black institutions and organizations. Right. Well, we seem to be kind of, you know, uh, talking to a history professor, we seem to be kind of working our way up uh, a little bit closer to present day, which kind of brings me to, to what I've got, uh, what I want to close out with. Um, you know, we a lot of times we hear people talk about the saying that, we, you know, we've all heard that, and it goes something like forgetting history and being doomed to repeat it and things like that. What specifically to the experience of blackdom? Um, how does that influence us almost a century later? And um, what are the most important lessons from Blackdom uh, that we uh, really, really shouldn't forget? Oh, when, when Barack Obama was elected, I had no historical, well, little historical reference for him becoming the leader of the free world. So uh, uh, to keep an open mind is kind of uh, the beginning of this. And that open mind has to stay open. And so for that reason, I say one of the things that we can learn is that we need to declare sovereignty or, or, or in some way find a place of truth and uh, defend it and, and, and possibly create a veil of some kind, maybe corporate. So you may want to create a business based on your ideas. That's what black did. Oh, okay, so maybe that's, a, that's, a, that's an idea. It's all about the refinement of ideas at that point. Well, we could probably spend all day, you know, doing what ifs uh, for different historical uh, see what I'm saying? Yeah. historical situations. One of the things that's kind of stuck with me is what what the difference of of the black experience in the Western United States would have been had there not been the stock market crash that affected the oil industry in in eastern New Mexico and Blackdom specifically. Well, I, I do not like to play that part of. Uh, history discussions on on what could have. Um, I will I will participate and say then you wouldn't have had. Yeah, I I, re I really don't know where to go with that one because because you're saying if it didn't happen and I spend so much time focusing on that it did that I haven't thought about okay so what if there wasn't the 29 crash. You know what I mean? Because so many events are connected to that event. So right, right. Uh, maybe it would have continued to exist, but possibly they would have taken their money and grew it in different ways. I, I think uh, Boyer going to Las Cruces wasn't uh, um, anomalous. It was his plan all along, get enough money and find the good land out there near the Rio Grande River instead of trying to depend on the Pecos or or the artesian wells. Yeah, right. that, that's a vision, right? So that means blackdom becomes an ends to a mean. But that's as far as I will go with what if. <laughs> well, I, and I have to say my question was inspired a little bit by the Netflix series. I believe it's called The Man on the High Castle. I don't know if you've no. heard of that. Have you heard of that? No, I've been too uh, worried about uh, the Bridgertons. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a, for those that don't know, it uh, came out a couple years ago, and it's a, a Netflix series about what would have happened had the Axis powers won World War II, and it's set in the oh. United States. I don't know. That was, that was the inspiration for that question for you. But um, we're, we're getting to the end of our time here. I want to give you an opportunity. Uh, one of the things I like to ask you know, all my guests is, do you listen to any podcasts? And if you do, you know, what are your, some of your favorite ones? Oh, I'm sorry. I don't listen... I have not listened to any podcast because I'm writing. 
I'm, I'm in the middle of a uh, manuscript and I, I'm afraid of too much being, you know, taking in too much because I don't want it to pollute something I say and it, you know, so, so I'm kind of keeping those out. But uh, if I were to, I would start with the Tupac one. I can't remember what it was, um, but there was one I wanted to, uh, that had to do either with Tupac's murder or something to that effect that, that I wanted to, to see. That, that's the one I wanted to listen to. That's the only one I know about, too. Okay. Oh, wait, wait, wait. And then there's uh, T.I.'s uh, Expeditiously that I've seen, but I've been avoiding because I don't want to. You know what I mean? Again, I want to have my own right, thoughts right. right now. I got you. Writing this manuscript. Well, before we go, Dr. Nelson, um, do you want to go ahead and, and as many as you can rattle off, uh, do you want to just give our listeners uh, some ideas of, of how they can follow you on social media, where they can follow you online, and where they uh, may be able to find something they might want to wear at the Blackdom store? Uh, the best thing to do is to visit com. If not... You can also visit BlackdomTheMovie.com, or you can visit AfroFrontier.com, or Blackdom Clothing. I mean, what I'm saying is we're accessible. If you Google Blackdom <laughs> and you can't find us, you need to get a new Google machine. I'm I, just saying. I, I had met you, and I knew that you were a historian. I didn't really know what you were studying, but a mutual friend of ours for about the last two years has uh, put hashtag Blackdom on every Facebook post he's done, and that kind of got me, got my, got my interest going. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it Even works. The shirt. He did a he did a whole photo shoot uh, with the Blackdom shirt. Y'all got to get one. It's hot. Well, my well, my wife's got one. Oh yeah, see, you see? know what's up. We're 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 consumers and we're followers of Blackdom and all Appreciate things Blackdom. Doctor Nelson, thank you so much for being my guest on the podcast today. Uh, it's been a pleasure. We could spend hours and hours and days and days talking about this stuff. I thoroughly enjoyed uh, reading your dissertation, and um, you know it, it, it opens up all kinds of new uh, ideas and doors in my mind. And who knows uh, how much reading I'll get done, uh, but I definitely I've got some ideas about things I'd like to follow up on. Ladies and gentlemen, with Dr. Timothy Nelson, uh, history professor and uh, knowledgeable man on all things black in New Mexico. We'll see you next time on the Square Peg Podcast. The Square Peg Podcast.